On About Books, we delve into the latest news about the publishing industry with interesting insider interviews with publishing industry experts. We'll also give you updates on current nonfiction authors and books, the latest book reviews, and we'll talk about the current nonfiction books featured on C-SPAN's Book TV. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And welcome to About Books. This is Book TV's program and podcast, which looks at the business of publishing. This week, we'll dive into the world of university presses. John Scherer is the director of the University of North Carolina Press. He'll be our guest. UNC Press is celebrating its 100th anniversary. But first, some news from the publishing world. Well, the publisher Simon & Schuster is currently in the midst of an unusual free book giveaway. It's an effort to help bridge the growing divides facing America today. The book publisher is giving away the digital audiobook and ebook editions of Amanda Ripley's book, High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out, and Anna Sales' Let's Talk About the Hard Things, the life-changing conversations that connect us. In discussing this giveaway, Simon & Schuster CEO Jonathan Karp said, quote, Perhaps if we all get a little bit better at having those difficult conversations, we'll begin to find more common ground. He added that the Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade, along with debates on guns, the 2020 election, January 6th, climate change, and immigration were on his mind as well in coming up with the idea of the giveaway. And speaking of Simon & Schuster, the company is nearing a key trial date in its proposed merger with publishing giant Penguin Random House. It was in 2020 that the Paramount Global Company, which is the parent of Simon & Schuster, agreed to sell it to Penguin Random House. $2 billion was the sale price. Now, that sale was challenged by the Justice Department, who sought to block the deal over antitrust concerns. Now, the trial starts August 1st in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. And now we're going to turn our attention to a very specialized kind of press, and this is the university presses. John Scherer is the director of UNC Press. Mr. Scherer, what does a university press do or an academic press do? Well, there's probably 150, 160 different members of the Association of University Presses, and they all do slightly different things. But in general, the things that we have in common is we are, we are based usually at a university or an institution of higher learning. Um, we're doing a type of publication that the commercial marketplace just doesn't support, usually an academically focused 
um, issue or topic. We call these monographs, these specialized uh, humanities volumes. And then we do peer review, um, which is a rigorous um, external review of every manuscript and every journal that we publish. And having worked in both trade and university press publishing, I will say there's not a return on investment in peer review, which is one of the reasons that the commercial marketplace doesn't support it. But it enhances books. It helps keeps keeps us um, out of trouble. It helps us stop publishing people who just want to pump their fist and make points and actually focus on the research and the argument at hand. Well, you spent several years with Basic Books, which is part of the Hachette Group, very large publisher. Why did you transition to university presses? You know, it's it, Basic is where a lot of university press authors went when they wanted to, to move the decimal point sometimes on the financial arrangement that they had with a publisher. Um, and so it, it was not a, a, a big jump to go uh, from, from BASIC to, uh, to UNC. I'm a UNC grad, so I had actually worked briefly at the press after I graduated in the late 80s. Um, so I was familiar with it. And it was just a unique opportunity to um, kind of go back to my own roots, but also to focus on trade publishing. I always describe as a kind of a conveyor belt. There's just always a new, big, important book that you have to focus on. And some of the things that we're looking at UNC Press are, are thinking about doing publishing in different ways and trying to change the way publishing happens and thinking about t- publishing in the 21st century as opposed to a kind of legacy process of publishing. So it's an exciting place to be, actually. Mr. Scherer, what's the connection of UNC Press to the University of North Carolina? Yeah, it's a good question. So we, we reside on the UNC Chapel Hill campus, which is kind of the flagship institution of, of UNC, but we're actually an affiliate of the UNC, the statewide system, which has 17 campuses going all the way from Western Carolina, which is almost in Tennessee, to Elizabeth City State, which is almost in Norfolk, Virginia. And so we actually have an affiliation throughout the UNC system, which we are really proud of and, and is part of the areas of innovation because we want to have an understanding for what the, the various campuses throughout UNC want. And they want everything from open textbooks to uh, humanities readers, to new journals. And so it, it, it's really expanding the horizons of what we're doing as a publisher. But you're an arm of the university. Yeah, well, we are a separate 501c3 nonprofit, but we report structurally into it. it we're, we're odd. We are unusual. We were founded 100 years ago by faculty members of UNC Chapel Hill, but always as a separate institution. And I think the idea there was to make sure there wasn't too much pressure from the campus to publish what they wanted us to publish. So there's always been, friction is probably too strong a word, but there was a deliberate intent to make sure that we weren't just sort of this reflexive publication arm of the campus. Can readers find UNC published books in their local bookstores or on Amazon? Yeah, well, they can find everything on Amazon, which is one of the great things about Amazon. Um, I would say we publish about 110 books a year. And about 20 of those we expect to be in bookstores. They're meant for a general audience, um, especially we publish a lot of books about the state of North Carolina and about the South writ large, and so we want all those books to all be there. Um, we actually have some stores in North Carolina that are great. They actually have UNC Press sections, which is funny because nobody walks into a bookstore you know, looking for something new by Simon & Schuster, right? They, they want books by individual authors. But I think a lot of our stores have that sense of community that we do as well, that they want to support the publisher. So how are you different than, say, Harvard Press or Yale Press? Yeah, uh, in some ways we're very similar. In fact, the the functions that we do are just like we did at Basic. So we acquire books, we edit them, we design them, we manufacture them, we market them. Um, And then, but I think it's, it's kind of the type of book that we're looking at. So even though we're using the same sets of tools and processes, the, the, the books themselves are, are a little bit more, I, I'm comfortable saying esoteric because, again, that's what the marketplace doesn't support well. 
I would also say a lot of the Ivy presses, many of them look more like trade presses and a little bit less maybe like UNC. UNC, we're deliberately, you know, three-fourths of our list is, is, is academic monographs. These are books that are going to sell anywhere between 400 and 800 copies. So that is a deliberate choice that we are making because we think that is the part of the humanities kind of scholarly field that needs the most support. And so we have the resources, and that's where we apply them. And the, the definition of monograph? Monograph, you can kind of take the word apart. It is a book about a single topic. And so um, it is a, more narrow in focus, deliberately so. In fact, during the peer review process, sometimes some of our authors who are writing monographs are make these kind of uh, extrapolations, and sometimes the peer review process says, no, you, you actually need to focus on the argument. And it sounds delimiting, but it's actually part of the the academic process that, that scholars go through as part of their tenure process in particular. If you are if you want to be tenured in the humanities field, you frequently have to publish you know, one or two monographs with the university press as part of your tenure package. But that said, I don't want them to sound more narrow than they need to. Uh, we had a, a revised dissertation published as a monograph that was a finalist for the National Book Award and on the long list for uh, the Pulitzer Prize. So um, they're not inherently narrow, but they just they tend to be. Mr. Scherer, do you exclusively publish UNC professors, their dissertations? Yeah, that's, that's a question I get asked a lot, and, and, and actually not, not at all is the, the funny answer. And it, it takes a little explaining, and I guess the way I equate it is there's an art museum on campus as well, but the art isn't of students and UNC faculty. It's, it's world-class art. Um, there's a performing arts program, and the performing arts program doesn't have performances by UNC students and UNC faculty. It has a world-class art program. And so I think the idea with a university press on campus is not so much to, I mean, we work a lot with local faculty and do workshops and things like that. But one of the things that a flagship campus wants is a world-class publisher in their midst, and that's what we're doing. Let's go through the numbers. Again, how many books do you publish a year? It's about 110. Uh, we're in a growth mode, so we're probably going to be at about 140, 150 within a couple of years. And then we publish uh, about 18 journals as well. How many employees at UNC Press? So we kind of run two businesses at the press. We have the press itself, which is about 45 employees. And then we have a, a publishing services division that we created about 15 years ago called Longleaf Services. It's doing sort of the back end of publishing the fulfillment, sales, accounts receivable, and all that. So we've got another 25, 30 people working there. Revenues. So revenues at UNC Press, well, we've actually, it's better to say this now because we've had a couple of outstanding years. So um, when I got to the press in 2012, we were constantly between 4.5 and $5 million. Um, last year, we were at almost $7 million. That was kind of the big pandemic year. And then the year that we just completed, we were a little bit closer to $6 million. So we're doing quite well, but still a pretty modest. Basic was a $30 million publisher when I was there. So that, was, and, so that money, are you, making, are you making a profit? No. No. Are no. you breaking even? No. So I, I can give you the, the, the here's the math on an average scholarly monograph. So um, it costs us between $25,000 and $35,000 to get that book peer-reviewed, acquired, copy-edited, manufactured, distributed, put into the marketplace. We're going to generate between fifteen dollars and $25,000 in revenue. So when I sign a contract for a new scholarly monograph, I'm kind of digging a $10,000 debt knowingly. Like, we exist to do that. Now, we get support from the, we get some support from the state. We have an endowment. We publish some regional trade books that generate a little bit more income that help support the, the scholarly list. But... The way I like to think about it is the scholarly list is at the tip of the pyramid in terms of mission. That is why we exist, and these other things that we're doing are in support of that. So you are a nonprofit. You've done fundraising as well, correct? Yeah, we, we do a lot of fundraising. How do you do that? 
um, <laughs> one person at a time. It's, um, I'm lucky because I've inherited a program. There were people with a vision in the 70s that started a fundraising program at UNC Press. So it's an endowment, essentially, is the, the key um, tool that we use. Most presses don't have this. It's a really hard thing to do. Our independence from the university also gives us a little bit of leverage. Sometimes if you're totally embedded in the university, the, the fundraising priorities may not be for the university press. There may be other things that want to do it. So we've been kind of in this narrow slot that's given us a chance to do it you know, really well. And we just talk to people who care about publishing. They care about North Carolina. They care about the South. Because our, our origin story is founded in 1922. There is In 1922, there is no publishing in the South except religious publishing. People are printing Bibles and hymnals and missals, but there's no secular publishing in the South. So when the press was founded, it was an affirmative act to say the South was a region that is worthy of study. So we continue to embrace that notion, and there's people who love the South and care about that, and that's the that's the kind of the, the coat string that we pull on. So, Where do you have your books printed? Um, they're printed usually in one of three places. Most of our books are printed uh, at a printer in Michigan. Um, we have a um, we do some illustrated books, and they're done at kind of various places depending on who has the right paper and, and pricing. And then we have a print on demand facility in uh, with our warehouse in Laverne, Tennessee, where we do a lot of printing. John Cherry, you mentioned that your revenues went up during the pandemic. What happened? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I personally bought more books and jigsaw puzzles during the pandemic than I had throughout my whole life. So I think I think two things happened. One is people uh, reading the book was a fairly safe thing to do during the pandemic. And then the press also has a long history of publishing books about race and social justice. And so when the country was kind of on fire a little bit in the summer of 2020, a lot of the books that we had published that used to sell just a couple hundred copies a year started selling a couple of thousand copies a year. So we were it's funny because a lot of those books that we had published, we had done at a loss, and then suddenly you had this, you know, almost a windfall. And it was a, it was a strange thing because we knew this was a, there was a very troubling external environment. There's a lot of precarity, and yet we were having this kind of like economic success. And it was it was almost difficult to navigate, you know, how to do that and how to make sure that people were being rewarded and compensated, but also. Um, I think there was a sense that we were doing our mission better than we ever had before during the pandemic. What about dropping the paywall? Yeah, so that was an interesting thing. So, um, so what happened was uh, we used these intermediaries to get our ebooks into academic libraries. And when um, you know when everything kind of broke down in March of 2020, I remember I had to drive up to UNC Asheville to retrieve my daughter. It felt like a scene out of a dystopian novel. The, these aggregators, they came to us and they said, people are disconnected from their books. They either left their physical books on shelves or the IP address that they used to access the digital collection all went, you know, all broke down. And they basically said to us, hey, people have already bought these books and you need to give them access to it. Well, this, you know, I said we had a good year, but in March and April, our sales hit a brick wall. Like we thought we were just going to get locked up for a long time. And so on the one hand, we were confronted with this kind of short-term economic challenge. And on the other hand, we've got these people coming to us saying, hey, you should open up all your books. And I came to the conclusion that, you know, in a time of crisis is when you really have to kind of show your stripes of who you are as a mission-oriented organization. And so we said, let's do it. We'll open up the, the, the paywalls, let, make everything accessible, all of our scholarly books accessible. And then a really fascinating thing happened, which is, first of all, the usage went through the, the roof. So they had to, you know, the, the people who aggregate these um, editions had to redraw their charts to make a bigger y-axis so that they could show the, you know, the exponential increase in, you, in use, um, which is great because there is this kind of declension narrative about monographs being less and less relevant. And it turns out that it might be the business model that is the problem and not the monographs themselves. So we saw the usage. And then at the same time, print sales went up. And there's an argument that we're trying to test, which is 
if you actually let people read digital editions, particularly of scholarly books, that they're likely to engage digitally, but they may pivot to print. And so we look a little bit different than a lot of other media industries where digital is kind of both the discovery device and the, the usage. What we're seeing is that for, for specialized texts, people discover digitally, but they frequently want print. And it doesn't seem to be a generational thing. There's a lot of evidence that, that's, that school kids want print textbooks as long as they're affordable. So it was, it was an experiment that we never could have constructed ourselves in normal times but we, I think we learned a valuable lesson that, that we can afford to disseminate our scholarship more broadly than ever by making by reducing the friction and the paywalls in the digital editions while, while having a stable business on top of it. And, and now we can show usage in a way, we can show global usage in a way that was inconceivable in a print-based marketplace where we really struggle to ship books into you know, areas of the world where we've historically you know, not, not disseminated scholarship particularly well. So. Now, as the country is opening up, is that paywall still down? So we, we put the paywalls back <laughs> up because we weren't quite ready to go there. But we are, we are, we are using the, what we learned from that. And we're actually we're participating in a study that the NEH has funded to systematically look at what happens to print sales of monographs where the digital edition is free. Because we want to understand what happens. Do sales go down? Are they the same? Or... Do they potentially go up because people have discovered them and found them in a way that they wouldn't in the first place? Once we have a better understanding of that, then we will we will look at trying to do it a little bit more systematically. The way I like to think about it is we need to kind of get off this cost recovery model of publishing where we want to fund ourselves by selling things and have people think of it as publishing as a service so that we are fund the creation of this scholarship and the dissemination of it. And sure, we can do some cost recovery and, and, and make most of our costs covered, but... Um, but if you think of publishing as a service, then we're in the business of pushing it out as broadly as possible and having that type of impact. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. John Scherer, I'm assuming that your marketing budget is smaller than it was at BASIC. It is smaller than it was at BASIC, although I think as a percentage, maybe it isn't. And it is actually my biggest budget line item at UNC Press. So this is another myth that a lot of people think that university presses don't you know, market their books. But I actually got as many employees in marketing as any other department, and they spend a lot of money... And they work really hard. And it's, it's, it's partly because, because when you market a book, you might sell it, and that helps keep the finances intact. But again, we're, we're in the mission of, of, of dissemination. And so sometimes we do things in marketing which doesn't necessarily return an investment where it generates a sale, but it gets a, a book out there, gets something talked about. And so uh, marketing is a huge, huge part of our, what we're doing. Well, you talked to us a little bit about some of the monographs or, or very academic dissertations that you publish, but... There are some books that make money for <laughs> UNC Press, and I want to point out one of them, which is Mama Dip's Kitchen. Yeah. What, yeah. what is Mama Dip's Kitchen? So there was this woman named Mildred Council who was an African-American. Uh, she grew up rural, impoverished, and she moved to Chapel Hill, and she was a chef in a, in a kitchen, and then she eventually opened her own restaurant in, I believe, in the late 1980s. In Chapel Hill. In Chapel Hill. And it's, um, it was one of the first um, soul food restaurants in a place like Chapel Hill. 
And so in the late 90s, one of our editors approached her and said, you know, you need to do a, a cookbook. And I'll tell you, I think at the time it wasn't perceived as a, as a particularly commercial enterprise. It was still, it had a, the restaurant had a reputation, but it wasn't sort of globally known. And in fact, I think some people questioned, like, why is a university press publishing a, a soul food cookbook, a cookbook, or any cookbook? And I'll tell you, the argument is we've always been looking to do a type of publishing that, again, the commercial marketplace doesn't represent. And at that time, soul food wasn't a type of food where people made cookbooks. It was not perceived as something that was like worthy of cookbooks. And so our, we engaged at this because we thought, hey, this is an important part of the South, is soul food, and it needs to be documented just in the way that other things get documented. We got lucky, and she got onto QVC. <laughs> and so um, it turns out that's all you have to do in marketing is get your author on QVC, and everything um, kind of goes from there. So it ended up, it's our best-selling uh, book in our history um, because of that. It uh, continues to sell this day. Uh, Mildred Council passed away uh, about four or five years ago, um, but continued to be one of our most successful books. But also it's beautiful because it aligns with our mission as well as being kind of commercially successful. How many copies? Uh, probably around 300,000. And still selling today? Still selling. Still selling is the today. restaurant still open even though Mildred passed? It is. It is. Yeah, her family has taken it on, the next generation of it. So, Well, I also read in Publishers Weekly that the best-selling book that UNC Press had during the pandemic was a field guide to mushrooms of the Carolinas. Where are we going here? Yeah, so we've, we've historically published lots of regional books, reference books. And I, I have to tell you, when we signed this book up, it, it felt like something sort of esoteric to me as well. It's, you know... Did you pages. hesitate before signing a no, field guide it, it, to mushrooms? I, we didn't hesitate because we, we, we liked doing books like this, but we didn't see it as something that was going to earn us any money. It was kind of a, you know, kind of out of mission and, uh, you know, 650 <laughs> species documented. But we published it right at the beginning of the pandemic, and it turns out I think a lot of people went out and did mushroom foraging during the pandemic, and so it's been a big success for us. Now, when an author gets successful, such as Imani Perry... You published May We Forever Stand. She's a professor at uh, Princeton. When she gets successful, does she leave the university press and go to a commercial press? Well, Imani's so prolific that I think she's worked with an, a number of, of presses. And I think, I think the way someone like her thinks about it is that there's a type of book that a, a university press might be a little bit more um, careful and deliberate in publishing. Um, and then there's a type of book like South to America, which probably needs the full muscle of a big trade house. And so she's... I would call her, she's sort of like a portfolio author. She writes different types of books for, for almost for different audiences. And maybe Forever Stand is for a general audience, but it's a much more narrow book than her kind of broad book about the South. So I like to think that presses can kind of coexist. There's almost, you know, you were talking about Harvard and Yale. There, there's almost no book that we published when I was at Basic, and I can say this because I'm not there anymore, that a, a great university press couldn't have also done. Um, but... One of the great things about the publishing business is is the variety of it, and that there's different places to go. It, a lot of authors just she had a good relationship with our editor, who you know she really wanted to work with him for for a book, and so it's just a lot of it is about personal relationships as well. I want to talk about the 1940s, The Free Negro in North Carolina, by a very well-known historian. Is this the first book that John Hope Franklin wrote? It was his first book. It was a, his revised dissertation. Um, and it was an attempt to debunk the myth that freed Negroes were, had the kind of the full body of rights um, in the antebellum South. Um, now, this is a great example of a monograph. So this is a very this is simply about North Carolina, and it's a, a certain time period. Um, but this is the book that sets the foundation uh, from from bondage to slavery 
from slavery to freedom, excuse me, uh, which becomes the textbook that many of us grew up with. And so that's a, gr- that's a great example of an author who starts by writing monographs, learns how to write, how to research, how to cite, and then to how to think more expansively, and then goes on to you know this illustrious uh, career. And we have a series, an endowed series, um, named after him, where we still publish uh, books in his honor every year. What's another book that surprised you, that you've published? Um, Either good surprise or bad surprise. Yeah, I only talk about good surprises. There was <laughs> so uh, Free Negro in North Carolina was uh, 1943. Um, a year later, we published a book uh, by a guy named Eric Williams called Capitalism and Slavery. And so these days, this idea of looking at slavery through the lens of capitalism is kind of common. You're seeing, we're seeing lots of historians do it, economic historians. But in 1944, it was not a common thing, and it was definitely not a common thing for a person of color to write such a book. So Eric Williams was went on to be the prime minister of Trinidad and Tobago, but before that, he was a professor of political science up at Howard University here. And so he writes the, one of the first books to um, make the argument that the Industrial Revolution, which made our modern world, was funded by the capital that, that was derived from the slave trade. So very powerful argument coming from a very eloquent uh, speaker. This book, had been, it's interesting, this book had been in print in North America and the Caribbean for, uh, you know, since 1944. It had not really been widely available internationally. We did a reissue of it two years ago, and we did a license with Penguin Classics in the UK, and they took it on, and they got an article written in The Guardian about how this book, this seminal book, had not really been available in the UK. They sold a bunch of copies. It became a UK bestseller 80 years after publication. So all of the authors out there who think you've got a chance. Did you see benefits from that? Absolutely, absolutely, because it's it's sort of a global marketplace. There's lots of Guardian readers here. And again, this, this goes to this idea that not everything is about generating sales. It's about generating impact. And so for us, you know, these two books published at a time you know, in the 1940s when there were not a lot of African-American scholars being published anywhere, much less at university presses, um, it's a, a really important time period for us. And I'm really proud that these books have both remained in print constantly and promoted to this day. Well, congratulations on your 100th anniversary. John Scherer is the director of UNC Press in Chapel Hill. And you're watching About Books. This is Book TV's program and podcast, which looks at the business of publishing. Well, each week, dozens of books get reviewed in national and local publications. Here are some of the new books recently reviewed. In her political column in the Washington Times, Jennifer Harper says that former George W. Bush Press Secretary Ari Fleischer's new book about the media, Suppression, Deception, Snobbery, and Bias, articulates how many people feel about the news media. Team America by Robert O'Connell is reviewed in the Wall Street Journal. It's about four heroes of American military history, Generals Eisenhower, Patton, MacArthur, and Marshall. Reviewer Jonathan Jordan says that the book is a, quote, delicious blend of insight, wit, and history, and a punch-packed introduction to four great military minds. Some other recently published books include Republican Congresswoman of Colorado Lauren Boebert's autobiography, My American Life. Speaker Newt Gingrich has authored another book entitled Defeating Big Government Socialism. The former Speaker of the House has had at least 14 New York Times bestsellers. And finally, New York Times Magazine writer Mark Leibovich released Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington 
and the price of submission. Well, another book that was just published is former NASA Deputy Director Lori Garver's reflections on her career and efforts to make space more accessible. The book is titled Escaping Gravity, My Quest to Transform NASA and Launch a New Space Age. Ms. Garver recently sat down with Washington Post space reporter Christian Davenport to talk about the book. This is part of Book TV's Afterwards program. Here's a portion. We know that we went to the moon to beat the Russians, and because of that, we established a crash program. So we set things up in a race type of format. And that meant we were pouring money in to do things one time, and that didn't build a sustainable program. Not a fault of NASA's because they were asked to win the race, and they achieved that amazing um, accomplishment. But it did not create an environment where you could do things in a way that left a more sustainable, less costly um, program. And in fact, it gave us the reverse incentives. Companies and Congress who had developed capabilities, people in their districts, infrastructure, needed to or were incentivized to use those very facilities, which were much overbuilt for the mission of the shuttle, which was to reduce the cost of space transportation. NASA wanted to employ their contractors. They wanted to employ the people who worked in these institutions and just kept going. That made the future programs expensive by design. And a reminder that Afterwards airs every Sunday night on Book TV at 10 p.m. Well, coming up in August on C-SPAN's monthly Deep Dive author interview program, In-Depth, it's talk show host and columnist Larry Elder. Now, Mr. Elder ran and lost for governor in 2021 in California. He's the author of several books, including 10 Things You Can't Say in America and What's Race Got to Do With It? Now, Mr. Elder will be taking your phone calls on Sunday, August 7th. Well, thanks for joining us on About Books, a podcast and program produced by C-SPAN's Book TV. You can listen to it and the entire library of C-SPAN podcast on the C-SPAN Now app or wherever you get your podcasts.